30 seconds and counting. July the 16th. 1969. Three men are huddled together in a space not much bigger than the inside of a car. They are about to be hurled into outer space, traveling faster than the speed of sound to pull away from Earth's gravitational field. And into the vacuum of space on a 238,000 mile journey to the moon. The computing power behind that mission makes its success seem all the more remarkable today. Forward, forward, 40 feet down, two and a half, four forward. The chip technology used in the Apollo guidance computer had been developed by a company called Fairchild Semiconductors. In an area of California that by the end of the 1960s would come to be known as Silicon Valley. Four years before that historic first moon landing, Fairchild's director of research and development, a 36-year-old engineer named Gordon Moore, published an important paper. In it, Moore observed that the number of transistors packed onto a computer chip doubled every year from a single transistor in 1959 to about 60 by the middle of the next decade. Here he is speaking in 2005. So I just took that doubling every year and extrapolated from 60 to 60,000 components for the next 10 years and said that's what's going to happen, it's going to make cheaper electronics. Though Moore later revised his calculations from one to two years, his theory has held true to the present day. This law, Moore's law as it has become known, explains an exponential increase in computing power and has massively accelerated our use of technology. The Apollo guidance computer, which helped Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin land on the moon, contained just over 16,000 transistors. These miniature components, which switch and amplify electronic signals, have become the message carriers of our modern age. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. 16,000 transistors. An iPhone 12 contains 11.8 billion. That's almost one million times more powerful than the Apollo guidance computer. It only took a few decades to get from pioneering chips to cheap electronics, just as Moore had predicted. Why did you buy a computer? Well, I was very interested in the new technology and didn't want to be left behind. That's wild what's going on. You can send electronic mail to people. Today, Apple is going to reinvent the phone. The COVID-19 pandemic has intensified our use of digital technology. What are the promises and dangers of this new tech-driven age? This is Tectonic. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times. We have reimagined this podcast as a multi-part series exploring the big ideas driving innovation. This season, we're looking at how the pandemic has speeded up the transition to an online world. It may feel like we're sitting still, but we are living through an age of acceleration. Doctors have rapidly adopted telemedicine, while patients have been using wearable devices. School children have been taught in digital classrooms, and billions of us have communicated, shopped, worked, and been entertained mostly online. 
our use of big data and powerful computing has also enabled us to develop a coronavirus vaccine at record speed. But do you or I own our own data in any meaningful sense? And who says how it can be used? I'll be investigating these big themes along with a team of FT reporters and other experts across continents, looking at different sectors which are run by data. I think what the pandemic has revealed is that there's probably an opportunity to take patient monitoring to a whole nother level. There's no way that universities can come near to satisfying demand in the market. Universities do a great job in educating the whole human. They are not set up for dealing with rapid societal change. If an entrepreneur wants to start a business that is in any way challenging one of those domains, they basically just can't get funded. They're called kill zones. They can access your credit card data and they can use CCTV footage from wherever they want to locate and track people. We now hold the ability to do so much in the palm of our hands. The rising power, falling cost and increased energy efficiency of computers over the past 50 years means that three and a half billion people, half the population of the world, own a smartphone with instantaneous access to the internet. Our lives are increasingly moving from the offline to the online world, to the point of becoming almost indistinguishable from each other. When I talked last year with William Gibson, the science fiction writer who coined the term cyberspace, he suggested that we might be the last generation to draw any distinction between our physical and virtual lives. During the pandemic, our devices have kept us connected to the outside world, mobilizing people to campaign for social justice and equality. That connectivity has also provided us with moments of great joy. I'm here live, I'm not a cat. And banality too. I think you need to unmute Ian. Can we get Ian's, can we get Ian's audio? Every minute of every day, we collectively send 190 million emails, 59 million messages, and 19 million texts. We conduct 4.1 million Google searches and swipe 1.6 million times on Tinder. But most of that data automatically comes from our connected devices, pinging out locations, financial transfers, messages and sensor readings to the Internet of Things. All of that data has provided the fuel for a new generation of powerful machine learning models used by the Googles, Amazons and the Alibabas of this world that have boosted the economic and political power of big tech. We are entering the age of the algorithm in which decisions are made both by humans and machines. Well, I do think that this is as big as uh, electricity and, uh, and the steam machine. That's Margreta Vestager, the European Union's competition commissioner. It's her job to ensure that fair standards of competition are complied with in Europe's digital marketplace. If this had happened 10 years ago, so many things would not have been possible to maintain working, uh, schooling, shopping, exercising, for that matter. And also, fighting the virus in itself has been accelerated by the use of technology. And now we see it, uh, of course, in every sector, in every industry, that digitization is, uh, is moving on. These are fundamental changes in, in how we produce, in, in how we live, in how we work, uh, in how we interact uh, with one another. This is one of the things that really changes a society on a very fundamental level. 
Our increased generation of data through the use of digital tech has boosted the big tech companies whose revenues and share prices have grown dramatically during the pandemic. This is the case at Microsoft, where the shift to working from home has increased demand for its company's cloud computing and other software services. For Chief Executive Satya Nadella, the pandemic has brought about a new digital era. We've all woken up collectively, including the tech industry, to say, wow, we do have at least this malleable resource in software and digital tech that does allow us not only to transform and pivot fast to new circumstances, but also gives us resilience. So these two words, transformation and resilience through digital tech, have sort of been, I think, the big awakening. Nadella believes the pandemic has fundamentally changed the way we use and view digital technology. There's no going back in the sense that the digital technology is going to be very much part of our economies, part of our lives, part of our society. The big question is why we should trust an AI bot as much as a nurse or a doctor when we do not know who has written its operating instructions. Given the inevitability of digital tech playing much more of a central role, we need to build more trust in this technology. Same thing with AI and ethics or privacy or internet safety. These are all big issues that erode trust in technology. We do not want big tech to control all our data, nor do we want big government to do so either. We need to develop trustworthy institutions that give users confidence that our data is being managed appropriately and safely. As the FT's innovation editor, I try to keep track of how technology is changing our world, and I'm constantly astonished by the collective power of human ingenuity. Our ability to collate vast sums of data and devise predictive models can change the way we tackle real-world challenges such as food insecurity, a problem that the pandemic has exacerbated, even in the world's richest country. A wave of hunger is expected to hit Minnesota families over the next six months. Job losses brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic are fueling the surge in hunger. When the pandemic first began, there was almost an immediate change in the amount of food that our agency partners were requesting from us as a result of that. So within a couple of weeks, maybe even just a week, we saw an initial spike that made us kind of pause and think we might be facing something that we hadn't faced before in our recent history. That's Julie Van Hove. She's the Director of Demand and Supply Planning at Minnesota's largest food bank, Second Harvest Heartland. Between March and April, Minnesota's unemployment rate jumped from just under 3% to 8%, and applications for unemployment insurance reached almost 700,000. During the same period, the food bank noted a sharp increase in demand for food from the counties it supplied. We needed some different tools in our toolbox to make sure that we had enough food to meet the demand that we might face. But the big question mark was, well, what might that demand look like? To predict demand for food, Julie and her team asked consultancy firm McKinsey to devise a data-based model. This model used unemployment data from the counties in Minnesota and Wisconsin, where the food bank operates, along with national data on food insecurity. So we were able to approach donors to say, here's the number of meals that we're going to need to provide in our community. And honestly, we were bringing in 15 or 20 truckloads a week of purchased product to be able to fill the need, not only in the moment, but knowing that we had a need 
um, you know, month over month for the next several months. If we had not had this data model, we would have been in scramble mode. The more virtuous uses of data are only a part of the story. There are also serious dangers in the misuse of mass online communication. Some governments have resorted to so-called computational propaganda, indirectly exploiting social media data to target disinformation campaigns against foreign citizens. Facebook has acknowledged that its services were misused by some of its 18 million users in Myanmar to incite hatred and physical violence against the minority Rohingya population. Thousands of Rohingya were killed in the violence as 700,000 people fled to Bangladesh. As these cases have shown, our data is highly valuable, and the need to build trust around how our personal information is used and stored has never been greater. We live in a time of, of identity politics, of, you know, really strong clashes, trying to understand who we are, how we interact with others. Data is an integrated part of that. That's Margreta Vestager again. And we are in the marketplace, uh, and we are in our democracies, and our data is, is part of what defines us. So getting in control of your data becomes obviously increasingly important as we leave more and more data traces. Some economists have suggested that data is replacing price as the most important information signal in the economy. Price used to be the best information capsule containing what someone is willing to sell something for and what someone is prepared to pay for it. But data is a lot richer. As an information capsule, it can contain where you live, how wealthy you are, what premium you are prepared to pay for speed of delivery, the emotional state you're in, or when you're most susceptible to buying. The problem, of course, is that data and price have a different history. We have a sense of what is a fair price, what is reasonable, compared to what we paid before, what our neighbors paid. When it comes to data, it's much more difficult. You have a sense of how much should I work in order to pay this. You have no sense of how much data should I pay for this service in order for this payment to be fair. And that, of course, puts the consumer in a very, very difficult position when it comes to assessing what is the real price that I'm paying here. What I see is the risk of markets closing in, more and more gatekeepers sort of deciding what are the rules in their markets and not always uh, encouraging fair competition. I mean, all of this technology was supposed to give us more free time, right? It was supposed to save us time and, and make things more convenient. That's Tim Bradshaw, the FT's global tech correspondent based in London. But even even when your groceries can be delivered by Uber or Deliveroo in an hour, I, I still haven't really figured out where that extra time is going. It certainly doesn't feel like I've got more free time uh, to relax. So, Tim, in what ways do you think the pandemic has changed the way that we use technology? I think the main difference is that we've all been forced to use more of it all of the time. And that includes those who maybe weren't quite such enthusiastic early adopters and um, were not you know, digital natives, but but it, we've all been forced to learn uh, over the last year how to communicate online, work online, shop online, uh, entertain ourselves. And, and those will, I think, create habits that last for much longer, even after these lockdowns lift. 
a lot of people are worried about the way that this data economy is evolving. Do you think there is a, a technological solution to this technological problem, as it were? Uh, there are a lot of people who are focusing on privacy by design. Uh, you're seeing big tech companies talking about the end of the era of the cookie, these kind of tracking cookies that follow us around the internet. And there's been a big kind of standoff between Apple and Facebook over privacy as well. Do you think this increasing competition is going to improve data protection for ordinary consumers? I think there's definitely scope for it to improve data protection for some consumers. I think the the risk of the tension between Apple and Facebook, for instance, is that you end up with people who can afford to pay for privacy and people who can't and are therefore stop using free services that just endlessly gobble up more information about them for advertising to fund it. And there are pluses and minuses to both of those. I mean, there, there is an argument which Facebook makes that, and, and indeed some news publishers make, that information should be free so that everyone can access it. And that means that that ultimately kind of helps democracy at some higher level. But it, it equally, we've seen some of the side effects of that in elections over the last few years. So it doesn't, it's not at all a one-way street. I think what Apple's doing by forcing app developers to be more transparent in how they're using uh, customer data and to kind of rein in how they can share it between apps is is broadly a positive thing. But Apple's products, by and large, are quite expensive. And so it does make me sort of feel like that it would be great if there was a, a, another third path found through that. I just haven't quite seen anyone strike it yet. It's all too easy to think of data as just a series of dry numbers in a database somewhere. But as we are beginning to see data can be used to wield economic and political power, to shape cultural and societal values, to define us as communities and as individuals. Computing power has been growing at an exponential rate over the past few decades. If Moore's law continues, it will open up even more technological possibilities in the future. Researchers at companies such as Neuralink are even exploring how to implant tiny electrodes into our heads to act as brain-computer interfaces. We may think that a good idea when trying to improve treatment for Parkinson's disease, but it doesn't take long to imagine far scarier scenarios. Technology, as the saying goes, is neither positive nor negative, but nor is it neutral. We must guard against the risks of the data economy running out of control and we should become wise enough to direct it to our ends. Next time on Tectonic, could a piece of high-tech clothing help emergency room doctors better care for COVID patients? The COVID-19 pandemic has put our healthcare systems under extreme strain, but it has also accelerated the debate about how data can best be used to improve them. I think what the pandemic has revealed is that there's probably an opportunity to take patient monitoring to a whole nother level than, than we had ever previously considered. You've been listening to Tectonic from the Financial Times in London with me, John Thornhill. This episode was produced by Liam Nolan. Sound design was by Breen Turner and Louise Burton with additional production by Oluwakemi Aladasui. The editor was Amy Keane and our executive producer, Cheryl Brumley. Original music was composed by Metaphor Music.